The Homeland Security Department looks to address both the promise and the perils of, you guessed it, artificial intelligence. It's establishing a high-level group to focus on how AI can be applied across the department's many missions. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Another study group about artificial intelligence, Justin? Yeah, you got it. You know, ChatGBT has advanced here pretty quickly this year. It's caught the attention caught the attention of a lot of folks, and it's caught the attention of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas as well. In an April 20th memo, he directs the establishment of an AI task force. It's going to be led by the Undersecretary for Science and Technology at the department and DHS's chief information officer. And it will address the many ways in which this AI revolution will alter the threat landscape and potentially augment the quote-unquote arsenal of tools that DHS has. And so this is also coming at the same time that Mayorkas has directed a 90-day sprint focused on countering threats from China. And so you can kind of see how there are these two new high-level focuses at the department coming together. Secretary Mayorkas spoke a little bit more about that at the Council on Foreign Relations event last Friday. Countering the multifaceted threat posed by the PRC, learning from major cyber incidents, and harnessing the power of AI to advance our security will draw on the entirety of the capabilities and expertise the 260,000 personnel of DHS bring to bear every single day. Gosh, I'd say ChatGPT is the biggest thing since fondue pots of the 1970s. So in the meantime, what are some specific applications for AI that they're envisioning at DHS? Well, the most specific and obvious application so far is screening cargo at ports of entry and at the border. Mayorkas has directed the task force to specifically focus on how it can be used in that sense. He's also directed them to specifically look at how AI could better detect fentanyl shipments. Obviously, that's a huge issue that DHS is needing to address here right now. And actually, Customs and Border Protection is in the midst of a major acquisition along these lines already. It released a solicitation for anomaly detection algorithms to be used as part of its non-intrusive inspection systems. That went out earlier this month, so CBP is accepting proposals today. CBP Chief Information Officer Sonny Bagwala explained the agency's approach in a little bit more detail at an April 21st AFCIA Bethesda breakfast. So all those millions and billions of packages coming in, we want AIML to tell us, you know, which container to look at. We just did the largest ever bust of uh, fentanyl that we just announced. And that's a combination of agents and officers who are brilliant, canines, some modeling and other stuff and some technology that we're using. But we need AIML so that the agent and officer, while they're and I've been in, I've been in the front lines at all these places. They can see that they just need an assist. And by the way, right after this interview, we will hear from Eric Choi. He's the executive director for Trade, Remedy, and Law Enforcement at CBP. More on how they're using AI to detect what might have forced labor content in there. Okay, so shipments, that's one area. Where else does DHS think maybe AI will work? Hard to think of where it couldn't, well, I guess. Sure. Well, actually, along those those lines, Mayorkas has also directed the task force to examine how AI could be used as part of digital forensics tools to help rescue victims of online child sexual exploitation and abuse and to actually identify and apprehend the perpetrators of those crimes. And this comes as DHS has also announced a new Homeland Security mission 
combating crimes of exploitation and protecting victims that came out as part of the Quadrennial Homeland Security Review released last week. So using AI as part of these digital forensic tools is another area, concrete area, where DHS is going to be looking. And then finally, uh, Mayorkas asks the task force to also look at the impact of AI on the ability to secure critical infrastructure. And this might be looking at the flip side of how AI could be a threat to a lot of different homeland security areas. All right. And then at the top, we mentioned the potential pitfalls of artificial intelligence and homeland security is thinking about those, too. Yeah, that's right. The The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is the DHS component that's responsible for, you know, securing critical infrastructure from threats. And CISA Director Jen Easterly came out earlier this month with some pretty strong comments and a stark warning about the speed at which AI is developing. We are hurtling forward in a way that I think is not the right level of responsibility. Implementing AI capabilities in production without any legal barriers, without any regulation. And frankly, I'm not sure that we are thinking about the downstream safety consequences of how fast this is moving. And so I have been trying hard to think about how we can implement certain controls around how this technology starts to proliferate in a very accelerated way. I think this is the biggest issue that we're going to deal with this century. Yeah, I wonder if China feels the same constraints, but how does this all knit together? I guess getting back to what Mallorca said, they're going to focus on this in some integrated way at DHS? Yeah, that's right. I mean, this task force is supposed to bring everyone together, all those different perspectives from the practitioners who want to potentially use it at the border to folks who are like Jen Easterly, who are a little bit more concerned about the the broad societal impacts that AI could have. And, you know, the task force has been directed within 45 days to kind of lay out a concept of operations for how it's going to move forward. So that, that'll come at the end of May. And then every 60 days thereafter, Mayorkas wants a progress report on what the task force is doing and any other pertinent AI initiatives that kind of promulgate across DHS. So this is going to be something that's going to be a big high-level focus for DHS for a while to come here. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted 
the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, 
for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sasulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, 
It, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.